Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stammel Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on chapter 13. Chapter 13. Neither rich nor gaudy. Costly thy habit, as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy. Rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. A quote from Shakespeare. We decided to make the 70-mile passage from Trinidad to Grenada a night passage, and left Port of Spain late one afternoon. Darkness was just taking the hints from the water as we approached the dragon's mouth again, and in the lay of the land we were carried into the dark opening by elusive wisps of wind. The last of the daylight left us. Our channel between the towering cliffs was scarcely a hundred yards across, and we saw only the dim outline of the hills on either side against the stars. From somewhere ahead came the sound of surging water. The sails hung limply, the bow pointed obstinately towards the shore, and we allowed the current to sweep us broadside through the bocca. Then, suddenly, the sounds grew louder, and we saw a blurred white line of heaving water ahead of us in the darkness. The pinnacle of the dragon's tooth slipped by. We felt the first of the breeze, and content, at last, consented to point the way she was going, swinging her bow round just as we were plunged into the overfalls. One moment we were floating placidly, the next we were rising and falling and twisting and trembling, and were suddenly spat out into the sea beyond. The night seemed wild at first, and for a moment we plunged and rolled and clung with wet white knuckles to the cockpit combing, while Swizzle took refuge in the dinghy on deck. But we passed out of the turmoil, and though the breeze was fresh, we were able to carry full sail on a close reach, allowing a considerable amount for the west-going current. Gradually, the powerful beam of Chattanagari blinking over our shoulder was weakened by the rack and spray, and we settled down to an uncomfortable wet night. As dawn approached, squalls gathered on the horizon. We could no longer carry a topsail, and as each squall approached, we had to lower the staysail and jill her through it. Daylight found us lumbering through a beam sea at about six knots. As each wave lurched against Content's weather side, she dipped the curved foot of her mainsail into the sea and tossed the water over her decks like a bird in a bird bath. It was the only time we had seen her do that. Progress was good, and by mid-morning we saw the dim outline of Grenada ahead of us and bore away a point to pass round the long finger of Point Saline on the southwestern end of the island. Sunshine began to break through and the seas changed from angry green to white-topped blue. Then suddenly we passed from the plunging waters to the lee of Point Saline and were scampering along in smooth water, gazing at our first real tropical island. We wrung out our clothes in the sunshine and lit cigarettes and sat on deck to watch the passing scene. We were rippling through water shaded from the laughing blue around us to the piercing pale green near the shore. Over the long line of white and golden sand stood ranks of patient nodding palms, low foothills and clustered woods, and beyond them, as remote and alluring as the edge of the world, a jagged mountain range. Fine, on the starboard bow, set in the midst of all this beauty, glittered the little capital town of St. George's, lying folded over the ridge of a hill and sprawling 
round a little harbour. Of all the islands we saw in the Caribbean, Grenada attracted us most. It is a fertile land with a population of peasant smallholders who seemed to lead a tireless existence on their little plots of land. There was the friendliness and courtesy which one finds among the people who have little, but who are satisfied. That was how Grenada struck us, yet within 18 months there was a riot and bloodshed in the island. Certainly there was no warning shadow over the land that we could see. St George's Harbour is the crater of an old volcano and one of the most secure shelters in the Caribbean. The hills rise steeply from the water, houses show through the thick vegetation and an old fort frowns over the harbour. Between two headlands we looked down the coast past the bathing beach of clear sand and clearer water. The old-fashioned little town itself lies over one of these headlands and rambles round the brink of the anchorage. We took content to a secluded anchorage close to the famous old yacht, Turn 3, a catch now and owned by a very colourful pair named Lord and Fury. After the muddy water further south, it was exciting to be able to glance over the side on a calm day and watch the gay little fish fluttering among the pieces of coral. We also became friendly with a young American who was cruising the Caribbean in an interesting little catch named Tidal Wave, which had the longest masts and lightest rigging we had ever seen on a cruiser. Grenada shares with most of the other islands a very tempestuous history. It appears that in the 18th century, any British admiral or general looking for a fight could count on finding one in progress in the Caribbean, and the opponent was usually France. Islands regularly changed hands and fleets chased each other up and down the chain. At that time, the inhabitants of the island were fierce warriors of the Carib tribe, who had driven out an earlier and more peaceful type. War was their business, and they would even resort to eating the bravest of their enemies in the belief that they would acquire some of his qualities. These Indians used to swoop down out of the hills of the interior upon the wretched settlers who were trying to colonise the islands. The French were the first to take definite steps against them and launched a full-scale attack. The Caribs were gradually driven north up the island until they found themselves surrounded on a tall headland on the northern tip with the sea surging over the rocks at its base. Rather than surrendering to the soldiers, the Indian warriors hurled their womenfolk over the brink and then leapt to their deaths after them. Carib's Leap they call the spot now, and a little church and cemetery stand at the scene of that last fight. Two hundred years ago, the world's spices came from the Dutch East Indies. So jealously was this monopoly guarded that no nutmeg was allowed out of the area until it had been sterilised. But it was found that in one other place in the world the conditions of soil and climate were suitable for the commercial production of nutmeg. That place was Grenada. During the Second World War, supplies from the Far East were difficult to obtain, and Grenada's trade expanded until now it provides about one half of the world's supply. Under the right conditions, the nutmeg requires very little attention and makes an ideal crop for the easy-going natives of Grenada. They need do little more than wait for the ripened nuts to fall to the ground, gather them up and take them to the nearest depot for sale. This has meant that little patches of nutmeg trees are scattered throughout the lush vegetation of the island, but it is the group of larger estates which provide most of the crop for export. Here we saw the carefully spaced rows of trees which break into blossom in the spring and the little brown nuts with their lace-like scarlet coats, the mace which is also used in the manufacture of perfume.
Then there were the shallow wooden trays on which the nuts dried in the sun and were turned periodically by the shuffling feet of women. Finally, we watched the group of local men and women cracking the dried nuts with little wooden hammers to extract the valuable kernels. In Grenada's 30 miles of length, we saw the variety of scenery, the rich and the arid, the brilliant and the sombre, which is so characteristic of these volcanic islands. Apart from the nutmeg, there were the fruits, bananas, pawpaws, pineapples, mangoes, citrus fruits and others, and there was a considerable crop of cocoa too. The villages were formed of small wooden shacks in front of which naked children played. On the coasts, every sheltered bay had its community with fishing canoes drawn up beneath the palm trees. The population contained considerable numbers of East Indians who were often the storekeepers of the communities and who, being harder working than the locals, were gradually cornering a considerable part of the wealth of this and of the other islands. From the northernmost tip of Grenada, where the Caribs had thrown their wives off the cliff, but had made the mistake of following them, we looked out over the nearest in the chain of islets, which were known as the Grenadines. We could see them stretching into the blue haze of the distance and thought of the day very close at hand now when we would sail up through them in content. When we wanted to learn about the true life of a place, not the flamboyant superlatives of the guidebook, we very often went to see the parish priest of the district who had lived among the people and knew something of their ways. Father McGibbon, an exceedingly charming man, was head of the Catholic Church in Grenada and used to come aboard content when he could to swim and talk about the islands. He would tell us about the curious beliefs, a mixture of the Christianity they had learned and the voodooism they had inherited, which the people held, and of the difficulties and embarrassments which await the young priest fresh from Europe. Death and funerals provide the background for a great many customs and opportunities for the development of awkward situations. There was the time when the old lady's body had been left out in the sun and had stretched until it no longer fitted into the coffin. On another occasion, Father McGibbon arrived at the hut before the funeral but could not find the coffin. He finally located it under the bed, fetched a screwdriver from his car and screwed the lid in place. On the journey to the church, the little procession passed a bar, leaving the priest standing in the road by the coffin. The mourners broke ranks and ran to forget their bereavement for a while. One procession had managed to reach the church intact and was shuffling up the aisle when the bearers dropped the coffin. The crash onto the stone floor knocked the lid off and the body rolled out. Nobody was at all embarrassed. They rolled the corpse back into its case and one of the mourners then nonchalantly took off his shoes and hammered the lid back into position. At many funerals, it is the custom to pass a young baby under the coffin and the nearest relative was usually expected to lament loudly or bawl. This custom is thought to be a relic of African days when the nearest relative was often under suspicion of being responsible for the corpse's predicament. During our three and a half weeks in Grenada, we managed to do some work on the boat and rigged the dinghy with a sail which had been sent out to us by a friend in England. Ernest was given the use of a photographic room in St George's and I very often went across the harbour in the evening to the St George's Club of which we had been made honorary members and in which I was able to write in peace. A boat is not a very suitable place in which to do work of that sort. With the life of the ship going on all around, one is inevitably caught up in discussions or asked just to come and hold this for a moment. Our financial situation was none too healthy at this stage. In Trinidad, I had managed to sell an article for a few dollars, and Don had sold a short story, but the proceeds for these were soon absorbed. 
We were, however, expecting some money to reach us in St. Lucia, an island about 120 miles further north. This was the very last of our original capital, and we were in fact a little surprised to find that we had it. With any luck, it would take us across the Pacific, where the cost of living would be small. Grenada, being the capital of the Windward Island Group, is the home of the governor, and before we left we received an unexpected but much appreciated invitation to a cocktail party at Government House. It would amuse the good people who invite us out if they could glimpse the chaos aboard content that precedes a public appearance. Content, at the best of times, is a small home for three men and a dog, but when each is trying to wash and shave and dress and disentangle his shore-going gear, the sides of the boat seem to close in like the walls of the dungeon in Poe's story. In order to ensure our appearance at appointed places at appointed times, we made a practice of having ship's time one hour ahead of shore time, but even this, effective though it was to a point, could not ensure a leisurely preparation. You cannot fool all of the people all of the time. Through long practice below decks we found that we automatically swerved or stepped to one side at the crucial moment and avoided unnecessary collisions with other bodies. There were unwritten traffic laws as rigid as any in a modern metropolis. We unthinkingly became used to backing into the space between mast and table in the saloon as soon as we saw through traffic gathering momentum for the dash between galley and after cabin. The problem of keeping clothes in reasonable condition on a small boat was one we never entirely solved, and on occasions such as this there was much swapping and borrowing to produce three passable rigs. Unless we were temporarily wealthy, we did all our own laundry, and for some time had occasionally wielded a small and emaciated iron which was heated on the stove. But it took so long to sandpaper the rust from it, that eventually we did not bother to iron our clothes at all, and substituted a painfully ineffective system of patting and stroking our clothes at different stages of their drying. On an occasion such as this, there were seemingly several dozen people rummaging through drawers and lockers in search of an errant tie, others on hands and knees invoking the deity while searching the bilges for a precious stud. Occasionally, a plaintive voice is raised, Has anyone seen my shoes? A disinterested chorus of, No. Has anyone seen? No. You absent absently meaning not so much that you haven't seen the beastly thing as that you couldn't care less. Perhaps you have just found a rusty pair of pliers laid on your glass-clean shirt. Everything is sorted at last, and everyone suddenly claims that he has really been waiting for the others for the last 20 minutes. You scramble into the dinghy and get soaking wet during the journey to the shore. At the party, you are vaguely wondering until after the third cocktail if that small tear in your shirt is really hidden by your jacket lapel, and whether the piece of marlin, which had to be used as a shoelace at the last moment, is leaving a tarry stain. An immaculate suit of clothes has appeared at your elbow, and you turn with a politely vacant grin to try and discover something interesting to talk about. A victory of mind over patter. Well, that's the end of today's chapter, and we're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com, forward slash the mariner you can follow the link in the podcast description and there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing interested in seamanship 
and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.